Hi, I'm Deb O'Dye. And I'm Ann Phelps. On this month's episode of Faith and Reason 360, we welcome composer, director, and worship leader Mark Miller. Mark is trained as an organist at Yale and Juilliard and currently serves on faculty at both Drew Theological School and the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. And he joins us today to discuss music of the movement as we explore the ways that music can bring people together, empower communities, and inspire all of us to greater lives of justice and mercy. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Mark, it's so good to hear your voice. Um, full disclosure for our listeners, I have had the opportunity to to work with Mark significantly, and he was an incredible influence in my own musical and theological development, um, as well as my identity as, as sort of a social activist. Um, so, Mark, it just means the world to get a chance to talk with you today. Um, but before we get to dive into those big ideas that you and I love to talk about, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how you landed in the world of music and faith-based movements? Oh, uh, sure. Um, I uh, have been kind of around music and faith all my life, I guess. Uh, growing up in northern New Jersey, my father and his father and my sister and uh, my cousin and now my niece are all United Methodist clergy people and uh that kind of going to church as a young person always had an influence on me um i my oldest sister married the church organist uh i was just a little kid i was five or six uh at the time but i remember being in the little church growing up um in the wilds of New Jersey at that point in the 70s and the church the church service was over but I would run up to the altar because that's where the pipes were this little pipe organ but I was mesmerized by it and um so I it almost kind of like drew me up with the music uh even before I knew kind of could could put intellectual understanding to it but I just felt drawn to that and then um I guess later on as a kid, uh, growing up in, uh, going to music camp, summer camps, uh, the Methodist camp in New Jersey, uh, it was there probably that I had hugely formative experiences putting together, uh, being in, uh, being in the woods, being with people that cared about me in a community, uh, seeing God in them and in nature all around me, and then us singing music together that was really meaningful. And I feel like, as for many people who grow up going to summer camp, sometimes it's kind of a very formative experience. And for me, it connected music to creating community, to feeling like you're loved, uh, and just the joy of it, I guess, um, made a big impact on my life. And, um, so and around that same time, practicing the piano, uh, learning notes and having my mom scold me because I wasn't practicing enough when I was 10 or 11 years old. And uh, I remember throwing a tantrum once saying, you know, mom, I'm done playing. I can't, I don't want to take any more piano lessons. <laughs> and uh, I was like writhing on the floor screaming as a 10 year old boy sometimes does. And... <laughs> my mom just sat there calmly and said, no, you're going to take lessons. 
you're going to continue on taking lessons. So, uh, and then thank God, because when I was around 12 years old, that, that, uh, revelation, that epiphany of what the music was for me really struck home. I mean, it wasn't like a heavens opened up moment, but in a way, I guess it was because I, I could, I, I tell people it was kind of like when Ann Keller, uh, Helen Keller was being taught by Annie Sullivan and she was, Annie Sullivan was trying to get her to understand that the water flowing through her hands was the, the W A T E R that she was being signed to those letters. And all of a sudden, uh, so the story says Helen Keller had this moment where, oh my God, this is, this is all connected. What you've been teaching me in the water flowing through my hands, it, it all makes sense. And I really, I felt that when I was probably about 12, uh, reading the notes on the page all of a sudden made sense to me. And the, the music flowing through the page and flowing through my fingers, it, it really opened up something for me, a whole new, <laughs> a whole new world. And, um, Kind of from there, it just kept kept taking off. I knew it was my life's passion. Yeah, I mean, thank goodness that your mother was so had that wherewithal and, and stamina. Um, because as as we all now know, you, I think that that epiphany, that moment, um, the difference between you and a lot of us that that didn't ever dive in and commit that deeply is that you are just vastly, vastly talented as. Double mentioned in your bio, you know, you're trained as an organist and you have this um, incredible classical pedigree. Um, but I'd be really interested, you know, my experience with you was as my gospel choir director at Yale. And um, as you say, you know, at camp, you learned that music wasn't just about performance and about being the best at something, but, but was truly about building community. And that that has been one of the most formative communities of my life was was the gospel choir that I got to sing in with you. Um, and I would be interested in hearing a little bit about your story, how you shifted from this incredible classical pedigree, um, which you obviously still have and obviously still bring to your trade, um, but how you you landed in the world of gospel music and what, what I really can't come up with a better term for than um, musical activism. How did you make that transition? Yes, so... My upbringing was maybe somewhat unusual that uh, I was adopted as a baby uh, in the late 60s. And my um, ethnic or racial background, as far as I know, I never met my biological parents, but that my mother was white and that my father was uh, black, Haitian, uh, and that the, the the family I moved into, which has been my family, is made up of all kinds of uh, different ethnicities and background. My parents are white and two brothers and my late sister are Korean-American and a brother and a sister who are white and my younger sister and I are black or biracial. So the family we grew up in was... Um, before multiculturalism was even a word, I feel like in the 70s... It, we are our family. We knew we were different, but I didn't know as a kid we were different. It was just our family. And um, but growing up in the parts of New Jersey we grew up in, uh, Mendham, and spending a lot of time in western parts of New Jersey, it was we were pretty much the only people of color in our town, in our church, my school, my high school, and um, so gospel music, black, the experience of the black church was not my experience at all. In fact, 
Uh, I grew up, uh, as you said, Adam, in steeped in classical music, the Western classical music. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, who's still kind of my touchstone for much of my music and spirituality, was kind of cemented when I was a kid. But uh, it wasn't until I had gone to, um, after Yale, and I was at Juilliard, and I was living in New York City, and became friendly with uh, some guys who were part of the black church tradition. Uh, and in fact, it, a couple of very funny stories, very telling stories. Uh, one of my good friends, he invited me up for, uh, uh, to his apartment to have some lunch or dinner. And he was from South Carolina, uh, grew up in Black Baptist Church, and he was studying voice at Juilliard. And I went into his kitchen, and on his counter was a pie. And I said, what kind of pie is that? Is that uh, pumpkin pie? And he said, no, no, it's sweet potato pie. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, what's sweet potato pie? <laughs> and he turned and looked at me like I was from Mars. And uh, in now I look back, I mean, I look in, it, in his eyes, he was looking at me saying, you know, child, you are black and you've ne- you don't know what sweet potato pie is. You're 24 <laughs> years old, 22 years old. So that uh, I knew something was a little different about my upbringing. Uh, I mean, I was really kind of naive to uh, going into this, you know, in early, late 80s, early 90s. But then... One of my first jobs out of Juilliard was at um, the Convent Avenue Baptist Church in Harlem. Uh, I I got hired as their organist after I had gone to a um, performance of Verdi's Requiem with orchestra, a big pipe organ in the church, and uh, auditioned for the job, and they took me. And I just assumed that that's the kind of music they would be playing there. And uh, I think they kind of assumed that, well, he's black, he must be able to play some gospel music, you know. So um, bad assumptions all around. uh, Because in the first few weeks of my being there, I had to to play the song, and and you know the story, I think. um, (laughs) I had to play the song, This Little Light of Mine. And uh, so I was up on the pipe organ. This is a really big church, maybe 800 people on a Sunday. And um, just to give to paint the picture, I mean, the organ is right in the middle of everything, so you you couldn't. The organist was very uh, visible to all people. And uh, when the closing hymn came and I started playing it, uh, everybody right away knew that I was not from their tradition. <laughs> in fact, I was I was <laughs> I was trying to play it from the hymnal. I was reading the music like you know I had been trained to do. Oh. And wasn't it a different melody? Wasn't it that, the this little light of mine melody? Right. Yeah. I'm going to let it shine. And they were trying to sing, uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And I couldn't even have picked it up. I mean, my ear probably wasn't as good to try to pick it up. And I, they, the minister stopped me. He said, Brother Mark, after a verse, he said, you know, we don't. <laughs> do it that way. We know you're new here, so it's the other way. <laughs> and uh, he couldn't even articulate, like, how, you know, I was playing wrong melody, harmony, rhythm, everything. But so he's like, more rhythm. So I started playing, you know, 
this little light of mine. Oh, so you just play faster. I'm gonna let it shine. <laughs> it, it was a disaster. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, the organist is supposed to help you know, facilitate the worship of God and bring the spirit in. And I was definitely uh, blocking all of that and making a mess. And uh, I tell people, you know, if there was like an eject button on the organ that morning and if I could have slipped into uh, another place without ever having to go back, I probably... <laughs> Would have, um, but it was a great moment. I always tell my students. I mean, out of that moment of deep humiliation came a real uh, insight into understanding that there was a really important piece of leading worship that had been uh, not taught to me in conservatory or in the college, and that was to understand that. A lot of people's spirituality and expression of music and worship does not come from uh, a page on a book. You can't you can't read it off a page. You have to you have to hear it uh, and experience it in a different way. And um, so, over the years, I've been working on performance practices to help other people understand that you know this is just as valid uh, an important understanding of how to express. Music, whether it's through uh, gospel music in the Black Church tradition, or folk music in uh, you know more in indigenous traditions, uh, uh, learning you know siahamba on the organ and understanding that you have to play it not as uh, you know Nicaea or uh, you know joyful joyful we adore this, but with a different understanding and performance practice. So that you know it's funny that part is kind of a understanding of social justice to to um, <laughs> to realize that Western civilization doesn't hold the keys to uh, ultimate spirituality and finding God but that that's you know found in all places all contexts and so um, kind of flattening the hierarchy if you will of saying you know no, the organ doesn't necessarily mean it's the best instrument to be played in worship, but it's an instrument that can bring us into community and closer to God. But so can, you know, so can the Hammond organ, so can drums, so can every a conceivable way that people use to create um, music. So that, that was, that was all these kind of steps for me were opening up to more and more understanding of justice. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but that I was, uh, kind of understanding that my, the music that I write and the music that I play and lead should be, um, opening people up to more understandings of, uh, what it means to be in community with each other, what it means to love God, as opposed to a more and more narrow focus. So, um, you know, and I guess, and because your question for me was two parts, so the understanding of my own identity and being a gospel music director or being a classical organist, uh, understanding that both are very valid it, I guess through that understanding of that, that, that story was about 26 years old now, but over the last 26 years, I've been trying to write music that is a bridge between my upbringing and understanding of what it means to be in a, 
kind of a white or majority white setting and in religious setting and uh, a majority black setting then to work at different churches that have um, Hispanic or Asian American or working with my friends who are from Native American perspectives. Uh, kind of bringing all of that along with me. So now I guess I'm asking different questions when I compose or when I lead music, when I play in worship. I mean, one of the big questions is, you know, who is there? Who? What community is being formed? Is it a community that Everyone looks alike, talks alike, same income, education. I mean, I'm not really interested in writing music that <laughs> is for those communities. I mean, my I want to see communities of diversity, uh, whether it's economic or educational or racial, uh, sexual identities. Uh, we speak different languages. I mean, all of that is really important for me. Um, so actually literally who is coming to church or who is not coming to church, that, that, that might be a basic question for me. And then writing music that will reflect people's lives or, or, um, or bringing music into the church that will honor people's experiences from uh, many different backgrounds and places. Well, I can't tell you how effectively you have done that, um, at least in my life. I mean, building that bridge. So, so for my own story, you know, I'm, I'm a blonde haired, blue eyed farmer's daughter from rural Nebraska. That literally is my background. And I went to college in my hometown and I, I went out to Yale and, um, I come from about the whitest place in, in America, which is saying something, but rural Nebraska might be it. And, um, I actually, when I, when I got to Yale, I was, um, really frustrated with the classical music scene. It wasn't, it wasn't mediating God to me. And I was there to study religion and the arts. Um, and I only came to gospel choir because one of my roommates uh, said, no, you need to check this out. I think that you're going to, you're going to like this. And it was the first time in my life, um, Mark, you really helped me discover a new voice that I didn't know I had, right? I'd been doing classical music and musical theater Um and you heard me sing and you said, I think we can do something different here and, and found that, that that voice that was in me had the ability to um, communicate something different and that was more authentic to who I am, um, despite or because of my upbringing. Um, and I just think that that's really, really powerful. I imagine that organist that said to you, you know, Brother Mark, this isn't how we do it here, um, in that gentle, loving way. You know, you really did that for me, but you did that for so many people and taught us to be in a community that changed the way we saw God and self and neighbor. I mean, I think that your living room was the first time in my life I'd ever been the only white person in a room um, with with some of our you know friends from choir and with your family. And I just think that that to have that safe space, that loving community, welcome me in and not uh, shut me out because of my lack of of background and in, in, in any kind of diversity was just so incredible and. I think the best symbol for that for me, um, can you tell me a little, tell us a little bit about the song Draw the Circle Wide and the composition of that and what, why you chose that text and, and the story of that? Yes. Um, Draw the Circle Wide, I had written, uh, actually, it was in the summer we were coming back to Yale and we got the news that 
a student had taken her own life and um, there was going to be a service for her in the chapel. Uh, this might have been in 2000, it was 10 years ago, I guess, maybe 11 years ago, 2006, 2007. And um, this, the scripture for the service was going to be from Ruth, the book of Ruth, that um, when uh, Orpah and Ruth's husbands died, uh, or Naomi's husband died, that um, where were they going to go in the midst of their um, suffering and tragedy and mourning and loss? Uh, that what do we? What should we do? And the um, they found the answer in the fact that they come together. That in the midst of this suffering that we're feeling, the only um, <laughs> the best thing to do is for us to come together. And uh, and I was talking to my friend Marsha McPhee, who's an amazing worship leader and worship designer, and. She said, Mark, have you ever heard these lyrics by Gordon Light? He has a hymn called Draw the Circle Wide. And um, she said, you might want to look at that. So I did. <coughs> and um, Gordon Light had written a, a big strophic hymn with many verses. and But part, uh, just a little kernel of what I took out from his refrain were the words, Draw the Circle Wide. Draw it wider still. Let this be our song. No one stands alone. And uh, repurposed them a little bit and wrote my own verse as well. And that song was used then at that service. But very quickly, the song became um, an anthem in the greater church to uh, to proclaim kind of a diversity and understanding that God's love is is wider than we make it out to be so that we continue to need to, to draw the circle of, of God's love wider. So the song, uh, took off in many different denominations, I guess. And, uh, in certainly for the kind of welcoming movement that, uh, we've seen in, I guess, mainstream churches over the last 10 years, uh, particularly around, uh, welcoming people of, uh, different sexual identities, this song has has been a um i think has been an important part of the of the movement i i am <laughs> the, the song is important for me because it keeps open the idea that um people from all all walks of life all different faith traditions can sing this and and have it be meaningful to them uh the, the parts of the lyrics that I only took from Gordon Light's song are actually they don't mention God. They don't uh, mention uh, any particular faith tradition. Draw the circle wide. Um, let it stand together. No one stands alone, standing side by side. But the song gets filled with so much meaning in particular context. And I realized that. Um, that's the way I. That's the way I would like to operate in composing my music, is to make it less, uh, maybe, Christian specific, but have it more open to understanding that it certainly can be used in, you know, Christian context. But that the song has wider understanding and 
literally the song draws wide the the circle of of love and community to all people. I love people. that idea so that, that you really excited about I that. love that idea that um actually by not naming God God is still there that in fact you carve out that space and allow God to be who God is and not limit that with our words but but in fact in doing so it allows for an authenticity that that God's presence is just so obvious in that song. Let's actually take a moment um, to listen to a little bit of, of a recording of Mark's uh, Draw the Circle Wide. Um, I believe this recording was made in 2009. Um, and if any of you would like to order uh, sheet music or recordings of Mark's music, uh, visit his website at markamillermusic.com. That's M-A-R-K-A-M-I-L-L-E-R-M-U-S-I-C.com. There you can also see his schedule of events to learn where you can see him and his choirs live, which in my experience is absolutely the best way to encounter Mark's work. As you've heard here, um, God really shows up in community um, and Mark's music strives to to carve out that space. Um, And if you do get to encounter that live, you can be impacted by the ways that this music breaks down walls and and brings communities together in harmony. That was that was uh, beautiful. Um, I'm going to throw it back to you in a minute, Ann, but I did want to uh, mention this, Mark. I actually grew up on sweet potato pie, just uh, <laughs> FYI. And I, you can definitely tell the difference between pumpkin pie and sweet potato pie. And uh, often for my birthday, I would ask for sweet potato pie. <laughs> I love it. Uh, that, of course, my mother did not make. Uh, yes. <laughs> my other mother made it. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that story for sure. Um, Mark, as I listened to Draw the Circle Wide, I... I'm just struck. Um, last night, I was actually going through some of your recordings and YouTube videos. I mean, you're all over the internet. Um, 
revisiting your your compositions. And um, my husband was putting the baby to bed, and he came into the living room, and I was sitting on the couch in tears, just saying how much I miss that community that that has been for me truly a, a sort of foretaste of of the divine realm of God that we're trying to move toward as the church and um, how hard it is to find such an authentic space um, to sing together and bring your voices together. And I would love to hear um, a little bit more about some of your other compositions that have actually struck me uh, since I left New Haven and moved to the deep south here in Mississippi. Um, But I was really moved a couple of years ago, maybe not even, um, by your song How Long that kind of went viral on YouTube. Just a real simple recording of you playing it in your, I think, upstairs bedroom, it looks like. Um, But uh, can you share a little bit about that song and the work it was doing for you spiritually and and the work that it's doing in the community? Yes. Um, Thanks, Anne. That means a lot. And um, the the music that I write is definitely for me. (laughs) I mean, you know, you hear preachers talk about preaching their sermons and many times it's, you know, they're, they're preaching at themselves. Yeah. As, as well as to others. And I, you know, my music is trying to be like a, I don't know, a, a theological reflection pool that I I try to examine my own understandings of how, not only of how I understand God at work and humans at work in the world, but my own feelings, you know, whether that's joy or frustration or deep sadness. And in the case of how long, it was... It was really um, out of a out of deep, deep sadness, um, and uh, it was right after. You, if you remember um, when uh, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, uh, within the same few months, Eric Garner, who had been killed uh, in Staten Island, uh, two black men. Um, dying at the hands of police officers. There were uh, indictments um, or a grand jury was called together. And in both of their cases, Eric Garner and Michael Brown, um, the within a week, both grand juries decided not to press any charges on the uh, police officers. And um, it was uh, beginning of December. And uh, I... I I was so uh, deeply um, troubled. And at the same time, I was trying to think about music for church for the Advent season, you know, the four weeks before Christmas when uh, Christians typically invoke themes of um, of waiting, of uh, preparation, of staying alert, of um, all these kind of Advent uh, themes um, waiting for justice. And I realized that this is, you know, um, exactly what I'm, (laughs) I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for our country to, you know, realize that, um, the, the historic injustice that some people say the original sin of, of racism in our country, that, that it's still something that we need to constantly, um, understand, confront in ourselves and in our institutions. So when I wrote How Long, 
uh, the, all those things were in my head. Um, I think the, the first verse goes, we wait for your coming. We wait for new life. Uh, we wait in our despairing. We wait through the strife. And then the refrain, just a question, how long? How long must we wait? Uh, it, it, that the song came out within just a, you know, I, I wrote it in 15 minutes. And um, so it was kind of a real plea and a prayer. It, it was so powerful to me. I was actually leading a, a sort of um, education course at the cathedral where I was working at the time, and we were reading through all of the Psalms, which is quite the feat. Um, but I had been underlining that month um, all the places in the Psalms where it said, how long, how long, how long. It was the constant plea of the psalmist. And so um, when that happened, and I was just really mourning as well, um, and I, I heard that authenticity in your your sort of how long, how long, that sort of long, drawn-out plea. Um, and then you got to the phrase uh, at the second verse where you say that we can't breathe. And I was mm. absolutely just broken down, just that um, that poetry and rawness of, of your writing there was so powerful um, and helped me find uh, both – comfort, but also inspiration to never let up um, in, in the insistence that I can pose from my place of white privilege that black lives absolutely matter. Um, and I, I see you doing that in such powerful ways, um, tapping into the movements and, and putting authentic sound to that that expresses people's emotions. Um, another one that has really moved me recently um I saw on your Facebook uh, wall just a, a live stream of a rehearsal of, of Yale's Gospel Choir, which just um, the Yale Divinity School Gospel Choir, which I just missed so much just seeing rehearsal in, from a personal place. Um, but your song, We Resist, we haven't actually had a chance to talk about this. It's it's sort of a almost like a civil rights spiritual in the, in the sound and the ability to repeat the same phrase. But would you mind talking a little bit about We Resist? I've just really been uh, amped up by that one lately. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, We Resist came out of uh, working on a chapel service at Drew that was uh, going to commemorate the uh, birth of Malcolm X, actually. And, uh, or, I'm sorry, his the day of his assassination in New York City. So, and they asked me to, to help lead that service. And I thought, you know, what song can we sing? And, uh, I, I wrote that out of, uh, <laughs> sometimes my inspiration definitely comes out of desperation, but, uh, because there's one hour before a service starts and what are we going <laughs> to sing? Um, and we resist came from, uh, came from that service, but again, took on a much broader significance. Uh, we resist, we refuse to let hatred in. Um, we rise up, we won't back down, we're in this till the end. It's the first part of it. And, you know, the song, obviously, we've heard a lot about resistance and what resistance means in the current political climate. But my um, <laughs> my hope is that it's a, it's a much broader understanding of that no one should let hatred um, be the deciding factor in how they're living in this world. Um, you know, so it's, it's definitely a, hopefully a bipartisan idea that 
you know, we should all be resisting the idea that hatred uh, would come into our lives and guide us. Um, and that that's a, a lifelong goal for all of us to work on. The second part of the song takes on a, a Christian understanding of resistance, that we pray for our enemies. I mean, it's it's a countercultural idea. It's almost nonsensical for some of us. What do you mean we pray for those people that would persecute us? But that's that's the Christian uh, posture, which uh, I think is really important to take in these days. We pray for our enemies. We welcome the stranger. I mean, I, that's right out of, um, of course, Matthew 25, when Jesus says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Uh, and, and show love to your neighbor. So I say, pray for your enemies, welcome the stranger, show love to your neighbor. We're in this till the end. And of course, the song is in a minor key. It's kind of almost, I mean, I, I won't call it militaristic, but I mean, it's it's definitely a marching song. It's definitely a song to kind of get your, uh, you know, get your blood flowing. And so I use that kind of almost march-like aggressiveness in the song and and try to undermine <laughs> the understanding of what traditional songs like that are about to say, you know, we're going to shout about praying for our enemies. We're going to, we're going to resist uh, saying that we shouldn't lo- show love to our neighbors and welcome the stranger. That That's what we do. That's what we're here for. It's so, so- Yeah, that's what that song is about. So useful for me to have that as I'm, you know, engaged in some active resistance here um, to use that as sort of my rally song, right? So I'm getting ready for an interfaith prayer vigil, and I'm I'm amping up, and I'm not saying, you know, take out the other team. I'm I'm singing to myself: We resist. We refuse to love hatred, and it's this. Like you say, this this pairing of melody and and rhythm with words that are so generous and compassionate. Um, it makes me think of you know this spring I did a, a service at Millsaps College where I currently work um, with Tougaloo College, which is a historically Black liberal arts college here in Jackson. Um, and every year we do MLK memorial services. One year it'll be at Tougaloo, and, and this year it was at Millsaps, and back and forth. Um, and in those services, I, I pulled two quotes um, that students read as a part of a litany um, from from MLK's um, uh, – I, I got it from A Testament of Hope, which is sort of the compilation of all of his writings. Um, but there are two stories he tells about ways and moments in, in the movement when he uh, saw music fortify people and bring together people of different backgrounds, right? Looking at, um, you know, there were lots of Jewish folks from New York that were coming down and, and being part of the movement with these, you know, young black activists and, um, you know, people like me, small Midwestern women who show up and how could they band together? And then how could they use that music to fortify them in the face of resistance? Um, and one of those songs, one of, one of those stories he tells is actually, um, he says, I remember when, a, when the first group got ready to leave to take a bus for Jackson, Mississippi. We all joined hands and started singing together. We shall overcome. Then something caused me to see at that moment the real meaning of the movement, that students had faith in the future, that the movement was based on hope, that this movement had something within it that says somehow, even though the arc of the moral universe is long, it bends toward justice. And I love that that quote that, that he gives, that arc of the moral universe is long, it bends toward justice, is so well known. Um, but that that quote comes out of a story about singing together 
Um, and he says a similar thing. Um, he says, I have stood in a meeting with hundreds of youngsters and joined in while they sang, ain't going to let nobody turn me round. It is not just a song. It's a resolve. A few minutes later, I have seen those same youngsters refuse to turn around before men armed with power hoses. Those songs bind us together, give us courage to hope, and help us march together. As we've highlighted before, Anne is the vocalist and liturgist for an ensemble called Theodicy Jazz Collective, a group that was significantly impacted by Mark's work during their tenure at Yale, and they often share his music with the communities they engage in uh, their mission to make justice real through music. So um, let's listen to Theodicy's recording of Go Down Moses from their Vespers album available on iTunes or for a CD, visit their website theodicyjazz.com that's T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y J-A-Z-Z dot com So Moses went to Egypt Listening to Faith and Reason 360, and we have a conversation with composer, director, and faculty member of Drew and Yale University, Mark Miller. Mark, I'd like to explore with you the spirituals. So we're going to take a little bit of a shift. Um, the spirituals are very special to me and helped form my. Uh, life of faith. And um, in the generations immediately after the uh, American slavery ended, 
um, the spirituals, it's my understanding that the spirituals um, pretty much were forgotten and that it really wasn't until the civil rights movement, I think, that the spirituals were rediscovered. So this would be in the 1950s and 1960s. And I happened to grow up in the 1960s. And um, a woman who I uh, was raised by, Leanna, uh, you That's s- who made your sweet potato pie, right? She yeah. absolutely <laughs> did. She would make sweet potato pies. And then also one of my other favorites was coconut cake, mm. always from scratch and always like six layers. Um, so uh, mm. let's talk a little bit, Mark, if you don't mind, about uh, the spirituals. Yes, uh, which have also had a huge impact on my life um, and understanding what it means to to have hope, to hold on in the midst of a society that says you're less than something, that you're not uh, to be counted as human even, or to to have secondary status, or to live um, in fear of of who you really are, or who you know God you feel God made you to be, and yet. Society all around is saying, you know, we don't think this. Um, the spirituals have been that source of resistance to understanding that you do have agency in this life. You you do matter. You do belong. You are loved. You have uh, gifts and talents, and you're equal to anyone else on this earth. I I feel. I mean, obviously, the spirituals have, you know, um, helped fulfill a number of different uh, things about how people live in the world, whether they're work songs or just play songs or having fun or um, or being in church or feeling sorrowful or, uh, or then, of course, being repurposed in the civil rights time. I mean, a little caveat to the spirituals that there, you know, we don't know how many there were, thousands, many thousands, certainly, four or five thousand. And they were all in the oral tradition. Nothing was written down. Uh, the first uh, folks that did start writing them down, it was post-Civil War, 1867. Uh, I'm not going to remember her name right now, but she she went down uh, to the... Uh, to the islands off of Georgia, to the Gullah and Geechee people to to document what these people were singing because she realized how important it was to all Americans' history and culture uh, the, to preserve the power and uh, efficacy of these songs. Um, but actually it was in the 1870s when uh, a historically black institution, uh, Fisk College actually in Nashville, it's falling on some financially hard times, and they needed to raise money. And uh, they, the four uh, members of the Jubilee Singers, the quartet, went out to sing. And they were singing all the classical songs that they knew, but the money raising wasn't going so well. And uh, I think they were in Ohio. They might have even been in Oberlin. I'm not sure, but they were at a, a fundraiser in Ohio and decided to sing some of the spirituals. Uh, still in kind of a concert way, but uh, 
but people went crazy. They mm. thought that this was the best thing that they've heard and the money started flowing in and, uh, and then colleges started, uh, black colleges started uh, duplicating what the Fisk Jubilee Singers did and uh, all over then spirituals, concertized spirituals became very well known uh, in African and European American community, church communities and beyond. So, uh, but as you say, these songs didn't really um, uh, have profound effect on the entire uh, country in the fact that um, with, with civil rights, they became this, uh, I don't know, the lifeblood in some ways for social change in our country. Um, so whereas the spirituals uh, in the days of slavery might have uh, helped people, uh, preserve people's own understanding of, well, not only culture and identity, but of belief that they were somebody, um, the spirituals kind of came to our aid and rescue once again, as you mentioned, Debo, in the times of the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. uh, where every time a gathering was meeting, usually in churches, to uh, to talk about strategies and understanding of uh, how we're going to overcome these issues of uh, Jim Crow or uh, racist uh, laws around civil rights voting, uh, that songs were sung. I mean, there, there wasn't a group gathering where the song wasn't sung, whether it was, uh, oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Songs like that, or you mentioned ink. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, you know. Ain't, ain't gonna let nobody turn me round, turn me round. These songs uh, that came from the days of uh, slavery become uh, the songs of the movement to help this country forward in understanding that you know that everyone is and should be afforded uh, equal rights. So, uh, yeah, these these songs which are still sung today, of course, We Shall Overcome, uh, they, they have a power and they're, they're truly sacred songs that, uh, that everyone can sing and understand that uh, this country, although founded on a very uh, unequal system of how people live and have their being in, the, in, uh, in this country, that there were songs that said this is not and this should not be the case. There are biblical songs, deeply biblical, based on the justice of that we, that we find uh, in the narratives of Moses leading the Egyptians out of Israel. I, I'm sorry, <laughs> leading the Israelites out of Egypt. <laughs> right, out of um, Egypt. Although an interesting so, theological idea. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, maybe maybe we should look at that now. So, yeah, they were headed to Canaan. I, I, uh, yeah, and I, you know, I definitely, for my own comp- composing, I, I look to those spiritualists as, as models and uh, guides to help me in writing music for our time that will have that power and uh, sense of persuasion and sense of community building 
that the that the spirituals gave to us in the past. You know, Mark. That's my hope. Um, you know, I was I was just a child, but even though I didn't understand what was going on during that period of time, uh, I think I had a an awareness. Uh, I felt something was wrong, and uh, we spent um, my sisters and I spent a great deal of time with Leanna. I can remember one time uh, we were downtown in Shreveport, Louisiana. And at that time in Shreveport, they had electric uh, trolleys, I suppose. Uh, that's what they were called. Um, but they had the, the electric lines that ran down Texas Street, and uh, you would the trolley would stop, you would get on it. And I remember I must have been, I was very young because I remember taking that step onto the trolley. It was kind of like climbing Mount Everest. But um, so, um, so I, I, I got on first, and then Leanna helped my other sisters on. And I uh, got on the trolley, and I sat down, I don't know, about the third seat back. And Leanna uh, touches me on the shoulder uh, gently, and she says, um, uh, come on, child. And I looked at her, and I said, I don't want to, Leanna. I want to sit here. And she just said, come on, come on. And uh, I, of course, was very resistant, even at five. <laughs> and, uh, but eventually she, I, knew, I knew whatever was going on, that she was very serious, very gentle, very quiet, and just uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, come on, child. And we sat, of course, in the back of the bus, the trolley. But when we sat there, I remember hearing her hum. And Leanna was humming and singing uh, all of the time when she was ironing or whatever her task was. And I don't remember exactly what she was humming. But as I reflect, I want to think she was humming. (laughs) Uh, Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I know she hummed that and sang that often. And uh, do you know anything about where that song came from? No, that that song, uh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Uh, and of course, the, the song, uh, the lyrics that I'm familiar with, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Glory, hallelujah. So even though the song is deeply uh, kind of melancholy, it ends with this glory, hallelujah, which might put uh, questions in our minds as to, you know, is the song sad or is it? But uh, I I mean, it makes me feel like that there's always hope uh, and that that's, that's even part of the the saddest spiritual, but I think of nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Uh, I sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Yes. Um, that th- th- these are just part of the the canon of songs that you know go back. To, they connect with like the Psalms, as we were saying, and with how long. I mean, if you want to read some deeply despairing poetry, we just turn to the Psalms in the Bible and realize that um, some of the spirituals connect in in different ways. I mean, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Those words are unique, I mean, and and terribly 
traumatizing. I mean, they they hold a power that um, is uh, probably, uh, of course, you know, lots of the music and traditions from Africa came over in the bodies of the Africans who were who were taken uh, and transferred over. And some of proposition that the tunes to the spirituals are older than the words that the, and some of the tunes probably from a West African context, but, um, yeah, I mean, we're, they're kind of lost to the mists of time as to where their origins came from. You know, it's interesting, Mark, you, you raise up sometimes I feel like a motherless child, um, Recently, a lot of people have been teasing me that they call me the wandering Protestant because I still haven't really found the tradition that is my home or the worship community. And, and in part, I blame that on you because I keep looking for gospel choir and can't find it. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but recently, I um, I was in a in a church building that um, had uh, I wasn't feeling comfortable in. And you know, you hear this allegory in, in throughout Scripture and church tradition of, of the mother church. And I was feeling really, really sad and and lonely in that moment. And in that space, um, it was sort of after it, it closed up. Um, and I was sitting there waiting for my friend who worked in that in that particular church. And I was sitting on the steps, and and I was just humming that to myself that sometimes I feel like a motherless child. And it just it still to this day, whether a metaphor or a literal meaning, is just so so compelling and so powerful and and healing in its very sadness. And as I think about that, that, you know, I love the church, um, but sometimes the church disappoints me deeply and and, um, in ways that I can't even probably understand, I suspect sometimes disappoints Jesus deeply. Um, It makes me wonder, you know, our our job as artists and activists – and holding the church accountable, and and you know you've been really active in that, and and you do an incredible job of both loving this institution, um, whether it's the church or the academy, um, but holding it accountable for the ways that it it continually tries to ostracize people and not draw the circle wide, including yourself. Um, th- how does that work for you? How do you do work in loving these institutions? while challenging them to to greater love yeah that's uh i appreciate the question i um you know not only being um african-american or uh biracial in a in a majority white church like the united methodist church um or in this country i mean it's it definitely uh puts you in a different um, understanding, I guess, of who you are. And anybody that's studied anything about um, privilege and understanding, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, and understanding white privilege, where you don't ever have to reflect on <laughs> the fact that the majority isn't, you're not part of the majority, so you don't necessarily need to look to uh you know, how different you are, how people treat you because of that, or the systemic kind of institutionalized injustices that you're uh, kind of made part of. That, yeah, that's that's always there, um, you know, being a gay person in a church, in the Methodist church, particularly where, you know, it's been institutionalized, where, um, you know, gay people aren't to be ordained or 
uh, that it's kind of inherently sinful, practice homosexuality is is kind of a part of our discipline. So it's part of our church law. Um, it's, yeah, it's probably deeply wounding in ways that will never fully be understood. Um, but it is, it's, you know, it's the life we've been given, whether, you know, whenever we're born into this world, there's always something that's going to kind of call us to the time and say, you know, what are you going to do? And, uh, and of course, some people have, in the case of the United Methodist Church, have left the church because of the kind of abusive policies. But for me, I've always felt that um, this is kind of, this is a part of my identity, uh, being Methodist, and every institution needs transformation, both inside and out. And so I've, you know, found myself just like many of us in the United States today feel that, you know, I mean, we could leave the country, absolutely, but part of me says, no, you know, this is my home, this is where I was born, and this is, I I am going to fight for the values of welcome and hospitality and the fact that everyone's a child of God. That's That's just what I feel called to do. So, you know, whatever, and having enough humility to realize that you know, someday someone's going to call me to account and say, Mark, <laughs> you know, you uh, drove around in this gas guzzling pickup truck and did our environment damage or you didn't realize that you were harming uh, transgender people this way when you wrote these songs and spoke about dualities of sisters and brothers. I mean, there's always something that will always try to, I, I realize that, you know, I need to grow as well and understand deeper understandings of what it means to be included and to draw God's love wider. So with that humility in mind, I have to realize that, you know, we all are in need of recovering God's grace. So. And um, when you mentioned abusive um, theology, I jumped to abusive liturgies. Mm-hmm. Um, being ordained in the Episcopal Church, uh, it's almost like we're having to reclaim the spirituals within our own experiences of the church and within our own spirits, uh, because uh, not unlike uh, any segment of the community that is ostracized um, or denied opportunities within the church, um, women uh, and I experience the liturgies as abusive in that um, the traditional liturgies of which by which uh, of which most of the churches in the Episcopal Church do do use um, rites one, right two, where the language of the liturgies is male exclusive, and so it feels as though I am not being welcomed to the table. To a community to which in which to share. That's one of the most radical experiences I actually had in, in gospel choir with you, Mark. Um, I think about you know I was just learning about what it was to use inclusive language in the liturgy and the power that that had. And I remember in, in your version of the Lord's Prayer where it's not only that you know you start with 
our God in heaven, our God in heaven. But at the end of, end of it, you, you use the term kingdom um, as opposed to kingdom. And I, um, I remember Wonderful. wondering and asking you, I said, is this a typo? And you said to me in your gentle, <laughs> radically humble way, um, you said, no kingdom, meaning, you know, we're all kin. Um, and that, that keeps out that, um, you know, paternalistic language, that hierarchical language, um, and, and just uh, the ways that you taught me to be a loving feminist. Um, <laughs> you, a man, teaching me um, to be a feminist. And and I love what that does and what you're saying here about this radical humility, not seeing that as you telling me I'm wrong, um, but using music and community to truly grow and, and wanting to be humble in that way. Something I've said on campus at working at Millsaps before to students as we do some racial dialogue circles um, the way I've phrased it is I would rather be called out for being racist than continue to be racist. And when you can make that shift, when you can say, I would rather be educated and be humble enough to see that I'm not perfect and I'm hurting someone, I would rather know I'm hurting someone um, than continue doing it. And that um, you really do that with your music. And I think the music itself has the power to to soften our hearts to one another and warm us up to each other, creating a space for us to be gentle with one another while still um, challenging those hurtful things that exist. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I'm down with that. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm so glad to, both of you to hear what you're saying. I mean, I inclusive language is so so much an important part of what I want my music to express. And um, and I'm constantly coming into contact with those folks who really have a hard time with, you know, um, understanding that male pronouns don't have to be used 100% of the time to express devotion and love to a God who doesn't have a gender. But, um, but and yet, you know, obviously by using those, those pronouns and those uh, gender pronouns, in exclusive words, uh, we help uh, facilitate a patriarchy that is, um, you know, alive and healthy in 90% of our religious expression today. So, Only 90%? Um, That's so 90%, optimistic. Yeah, I'd say 90%. I mean, I get, I'd, giving 10% to people who use inclusive language worldwide in Christianity might actually be too much. Um, so, I, re I realize, you know, we have a long journey ahead of us. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Well, Mark, you have been my worship experience today, and I want to thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking about music of the movement. Absolutely. And for listeners, join us next month as we examine the life and legacy of one of Faith and Reason's central thinkers, Marcus Borg, whose work included uh, The Heart of Christianity and Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, two books that made faith accessible to many in a generation that has struggled to explore Christianity with reason and integrity. Um, he's helped us to discover a new Jesus's gospel of social, economic, environmental, and political justice. For more ways to infuse faith with critical thinking and explore the ways that religion can inform us and move us toward justice, go to faithandreason.org, F-A-I-T-H, 
A-N-D-R-E-A-S-O-N.org, where you can subscribe to our monthly e-newsletters, visit our blog and video content, or find materials for use in individual or group educational settings. This program is produced by Faith and Reason, a program of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation. 